You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight on TopCast, we've got a William Soundman, somebody that did the sound on many of William's games from 1986 up to about 1995. Then he moved over to Capcom and was head of the sound department at Capcom Pinball. Then he went to Incredible Technologies, worked there, and finally ended up working at Stern Pinball, doing a lot of their machines, including Simpsons, Pinball Party, Terminator 3, Lord of the Rings, and many of their other pinball games. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Guest. All right, I'd like to welcome Chris Grainer to TopCast tonight. Again, Chris worked at Williams from 1986 up to about 1995. He did a lot of their popular games, including Pinbot, F-14 Tomcat, Fire, Cyclone, Taxi, Earthshaker, Elvira and the Party Monsters, Funhouse, Terminator 2, The Adams Family, Fishtails, Whitewater, Twilight Zone, Indiana Jones, Red and Ted Roadshow. You can see it just keeps going on and on, the number of incredible Williams pinball games that he did the sound on. So we're going to give Chris a call right now and see how he developed the sound on these incredible pinball games. Hi, Clay. How are you? Hey, Chris, do you got a sec? Yep. So what is your first relationship with pinball? I mean, were you a pinball player or anything, or were you a musician, and then you became a... I played pinball in, um, you know, in, uh, you know late, in, late in high school and then, then extensively early in college. I, you know, I, I, I went away to, uh, to college in 1976 uh, at the University of Illinois in Urbana, and uh, just living in the dorm that I lived in, I played a ton of pinball. You know, the, the first couple of years that I was in college, I played a lot of pinball. And, um, you know, they were, they were, our games were the, were the games from, uh, uh, from Gottlieb, uh, in the early and mid seventies, like Abracadabra and Surf Champ. Those were my two favorites. Um, but, uh, uh, that was my first real, you know, kind of an intimate experience with pinball. And, uh, you know, Captain Fantastic was from that time frame. There were a couple, I think Meteor was from that time frame. You know, it was a, was a game was like that was in the game room in my dorm, and that's where I mostly played. And uh, you know, really, this was really before video games altogether. So it was you know it was 1976, 77, 78. Um, so played a lot then. Um, in 79, I really got serious about Space Invaders. I dropped you know 500 hours on on a Space Invaders game, and and uh, and just at the point where I was you know routinely you know bumping up my own high score on that particular machine. Um, you know, asteroids came out, and I just sort of like detected a pattern, and I stopped playing games. I just said, you know what, I'm not doing this. I'm not, you know, I'm not blowing all this money. So at that point, you know, that was '79. I basically stopped playing games altogether. And then in in, in the meantime, I was studying music and studying composition at at, at the university. And um, you know, the University of Illinois is a big computer music and electronic music avant-garde, you know, kind of a place. And so I was working kind of in that community and doing that kind of work, and um, really not by by any kind of design at all. It was you know I I, I wasn't thinking this way in any way, um, but it turns out that the kind of of really you know very open ended and kind of avant garde composition that was being uh, you know taught and 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 promoted in Urbana at that time was just the kind of work that was just perfect 
I had a, I, I actually had a demo, uh, a, a, you know, demo reel that I had from, you know, there was a, there was a sort of a, uh, a kooky, uh, little, you know, kind of a throwaway composition that I had written that I, you know, that when I, I, I reestablished contact with the games community in 84, um, thinking about moving to Chicago and looking for a gig and, uh, hooking up with the Northwestern computer music people, I, uh, ended up, uh, applying actually at Milestar, which was what Gottlieb had become. Right. Um, met Dave Zabriskie, who was, who was working there at the time. Um, and applied for a job there, and that little goofy composition was my demo reel. And they freaked, and they just went, oh, my God, this is perfect. This is exactly what we want. You know, when can you start? You know, so I had a job offer from them, um, and before I was able to actually execute that job offer, Milestar put on a hiring freeze, and they had to withdraw the offer. So, Hmm. um, you know, I was working as a programmer at that time in Champaign, Urbana, and uh, that was working out okay, uh, but I... uh, you know, there was a pretty strong personal reasons that we had to, to want to move back to Chicago anyway and my family at that time. So we, we were looking and, uh, uh, we were looking up here and while I was in the midst of looking for a new job up here, Milestar lifted their freeze and said, you know, we had, we basically had somebody, you know, uh, we lost a person and under the terms of the, of the, of the freeze, we can replace that person. So if you'd like your job, the job that we offered you, it's still available to you. And, and I, I decided not to take it at the time, which turned out to be a pretty fortuitous move because uh, uh, six months later they shut that factory down. So that was probably you know a pretty smart move. And I worked as a as a computer consultant up here from '84 to '86 before I, I had the opportunity to come along at Williams. And so it was in mid '86, uh, March April of '86, that I actually moved over to Williams and uh, and started working with the original. Um, you know, the first game that went out of the Williams shop with Yamaha synthesizer hardware was my first game. It was Road Kings. Um, so that was that was where that started. And uh, uh, I was working with another guy there by the name of Bill Parad, who um, is still a uh, you know a, a neighbor and an acquaintance uh, uh, in in Evanston, and um, was a fabulous programmer and a very interesting guy with regard to sound. He uh, uh, he wrote most of the software, and I ended up writing most of the music. And uh, both of us designed a lot of sounds, and uh, kind of worked on putting the packages together ourselves. You know, uh, collaboratively for the first for the first few games. He he ended up leaving about a year and a half after that, and uh, and at that point, you know, the, the the system software was pretty much written and in place, and and we uh, we we just kind of did, did maintenance work on on that software um, really until. Well, I'm going to say 91, 92 before the the uh, the um, uh, the original DCS ideas started to really emerge. So, when you were doing the sound, you mentioned the Yamaha sound chip. I mean, how did how did they choose this chip, and how do you write for a particular chip? Well, to, to be honest, I didn't choose it. It was that that it was it was hardware that was chosen. Um, uh, really, at that time, it was a you know it was a it was a chip that that. Produced a certain number of, of synthetic tones um, all at the same time, and could be treated as a, as a synthesizer that was pro- sufficiently programmable so that you could say, "I want one." Uh, you know, I could make eight noises at a time, basically, with the hardware that you know that that chip uh, the chip had that capabilities. Um, so one of those one of those you know voices or instruments you know turned out to be a bass, and one turned out to be a kind of a guitar sound, and you know, I'd use a couple to do a piano sound, and and you know, basically we'd build a small little rock band or something like that out of what this chip was capable of doing, right?
uh, uh, Bill Parag, with my help, developed a uh, you know a, a music writing operating system that allowed us to write uh, music you know get, you know music scripts and sound effects scripts in a in a sort of a, a, a macro assembly language and um, uh, and and that's essentially what we did. It wasn't a MIDI system or anything like that. It was a you know, it was basically writing a mac, you know, macro assembler, um, you know, directives to to play a note and then to stop playing and to play another one and play a different pitch for a different duration and um, you know, having to kind of coordinate uh, eight of those things running at the same time and if they got out of sync, you'd hear it right away and you'd have to go and fix your scripts and, and it was that kind of thing. You know, we were basically writing writing music in a text editor in assembly language is essentially what we were doing. So there was no keyboard hooked up to any hardware whatsoever. Everything was just not really. I mean, I had a keyboard in my office that I could use to demo stuff, you know, but I was just, it would be noodling around. I actually wrote on, on, on manuscript paper, and, uh, you know, frankly, to this day, I continue to write on manuscript paper. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's the traditional way to do it, and, and oftentimes it's the, uh, it's, it's the, the easiest and the, and the most effective way to get, you know, to get your idea down so that you remember what it is, you know. So you'd write the music on manuscript paper, but then essentially what you do is then have to transform this from the notes on the tra- on the manuscript paper to actually writing it in a program. That's right. I had to type it in note by note. That's exactly right. And like a particular, what I mean, what determined a note in this macro assembler? How did you do that? Oh, we would. You know, there was a there was a there was a you know the syntax of the language that we would use the syntax. Of the macro language would be, you know, you'd say note, and then you'd say a pitch, you know, it'd indicate a pitch in some way, you know, C4 or something like that, and then you'd, you know, comma, and then you'd say a duration, and, and that would be a note, right? And, uh, and then, you know, the next line would be the next note, or, uh, would be a rest, or would be some other kind of directive, like, a, you know, a slur, or a, or a, uh, uh, you know, a volume change, or, uh, a, a voice or a patch change, all those things had, had their own syntax, uh, similar, you know, in concept to MIDI, uh, because you know, the, you know, there's a note directive in MIDI, just like, just like, you know, we were using. It, it's just that the syntax was, you know, the syntax we were using was proprietary, and 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 we, uh, you know, uh, we we just, you know, we made do with with, you know, the, the our, a kind of a homebrew, you know, version of that uh, of that process. So, um, uh, yeah, that was that's that's pretty much how we did it. You know, I I. I Got pretty good at, at at you know at basically like touch composing. You know how you touch type if you're looking at something and you're typing it in. I would you know I'd be looking at the manuscript page and and typing you know typing those directives. I got pretty fast at typing them out. You know and uh, um, you know it's a text editing stuff. You know you're cutting and pasting and using whatever tricks you can to do it as quickly as possible. But um, you know basically you're 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 sitting there typing notes in. And there were control structures that allowed us to do loops and. You know, we had variables that we could change, and so we could do, you know, some basic, you know, sort of simple programming tricks to cause uh, different things to happen, you know, programmatically. And those things, you know, ended up being the the main sort of tool in our in our sound effects toolbox. You know, we would do these elaborate, um, you know, things where we'd have, you know, just like you know, dozens and, and hundreds of notes that would fire off in in the space of a second or two. In a very complicated pattern that would kind of evolve, you know, and and we got pretty good at, at shaping those things to produce, you know, those kind of very graceful uh, sound effects that we made, you know, through the games from like '86 to '93 was was the uh, was the duration of that of.
out of that out of that Yamaha chip. So that Yamaha chip existed from 1986 with Road Kings. You're saying all the way up to like Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was the last one that I did. You're right. Um, yeah, Whitewater was the year before. I apologize. Um, yeah. yeah, because uh, yeah, because um, Indiana Jones was the first game to use the uh, DCS sound system, and then you're saying everything changed with that. Well, yeah, that was a completely new hardware base, and the, and the method of making sound and making music, uh, you know, really evolved into you know into the way that that the sound and music uh, is made today. Um, you know, instead of having eight synthetic voices that you had to combine into a piece of music and and you know transcribe, uh, having the synthesizer actually perform the music. You know, with DCS, you can take music or sounds from any source at all. You know, whether it's a licensed Aerosmith tune or uh, or or something that that I composed in my own studio uh, and record it, and then take that recording and 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 place it on one of of you know however many available tracks there are within the system and and the DCS system would uh, you know would play that system back like a multi-channel tape deck basically a multi-channel interactive um, you know interactive playback device so this Yamaha chip basically lasted like seven or eight years isn't that like a long time for a sound platform to be used in like this environment that's certainly what we thought yes we thought if uh, you know we, we thought we should have upgraded much sooner than that but um, you know, it was it was what it was. It was a system that they had sunk. Of you know, one of the things about pinball that that um, you know that that uh, doesn't have very many parallels in the computer game world is that um, well, it does have a, a, a kind of an odd parallel. But you know, I, the, the, the statement is simply that that um, hardware costs a lot of money to develop, and um, hardware manufacturers, especially ones that were you know that were manufacturing you know essentially a, a you know an item by hand. Okay, um, you know, pinball is is largely assembled by hand, and that's still true today. Um, you know, people who have that kind of mentality about hardware, you know, their 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 big expense is is design costs, right? And so, designing a new circuit board that's a you know that's an expensive proposition, and uh, and they basically want to use a piece of hardware for as long as they can to get the mileage out of it. So, you know, that was there were. There were various, you know, interim upgrades and versions and things like that, but the basic design, uh, um, you know, really just underwent very minor modifications from '86 to '93. Well, let's take the, let's take two extremes. Let's take Pinbot, for example, in Adam's Family. So you got Pinbot came out in '86, and you got Adam's Family that came out in '92, and they both use the same Yamaha uh, synthesizer chip, but they sound dramatically different i mean it, it, when people will say when i'm not a big fan of system 11 games and people will say why and i'm like man because it it sounds like a system 11 game but when when wpc came around it's like the sound seems so much more involved but you're saying that it really wasn't it, the wpc really was an incremental change the biggest change that that happened with wpc is that the is that the amount of of ram okay the amount of memory that we had on board uh, increased by a pretty a, a pretty significant way, and that allowed us to start bringing more elements of live sound and recorded sound into the into the soundtracks. So so the, so technologically, the capability was there back in Road King's days or Pinbot days. But what was actually delivered was uh, um, you know was you know I think we had one 256k RAM chip. Uh, uh, available on the on the, on the, you know in the Pinbot Road King system, mm-hmm. um, and uh, is that right? I guess there were two. Uh, so you know, not 
all the sound effects for those games were, um, you know, were, were synthesized, right? Um, System 11 sounds, you know, those algorithmic sounds that Jarvis and, and, and uh, uh, all those fabulous Kudlarik uh, um, uh, and, 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 you know, a whole bunch of guys back in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, had developed all these algorithms for the System, system 11 system. You know, for a guy like me, an avant-garde composer, I just thought those things were awesome and totally cool, you know, and, and still to this day, you know, those algorithms are, are, are wild and, and woolly, but, you know, they produce very kind of, you know, the, 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 the expressive range is, 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 you know, still pretty limited. And, um, you know, that's, that's your, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's what you were just expressing there. Um, so you're saying largely it was a difference in, in how much RAM you had to work with. That's really, that's really what it amounted to. You know, by the time we got to WPC, the System 11 system, and a lot of those, um, you know, really graceful and elegant, uh, but very limited palette, you know, electronic sounds, those things went away. I thought, you know, when you said Pinbot, I kind of had to smile a little bit, because I think that Pinbot represented the, the absolute pinnacle of the marriage between the Yamaha system and the System 11 system. Um, the System 11 system, remember that, that goes back to, you know what, space shuttle or something like that? I, I can't remember, even remember. No, high high speed, high speed. Actually, high speed was the game before Road Kings. High speed was the first System Eleven. It already added. You know, high speed was the first game that added that 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 attached a separate piece of hardware to the System Eleven sound system. The System Eleven pinball system, you know, was a sixty-eight hundred, you know, a Motorola sixty-eight hundred uh, uh, CPU and another sixty-eight hundred making sense. Okay. Right. And that you know the one sixty eight hundred ran all the game logic, and then the sixty the, the the second one ran the sound system, and it could only make one sound at a time. Okay, so when you go back and listen to Space Shuttle or 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 uh, Sorcerer, those games from like eighty two, eighty three, mm-hmm. those games, uh, you know, uh, both of those things had a, a kind of a um, you know Space Shuttle has the great one. I'll see if I can like imitate Space Shuttle for you. Hang, hang on a second, I can only do this with my right hand. But but this is what Space Shuttle sounded like all the time in the background. It would go right, and it was just a loop like that. It just ran the whole time, right? Right. And then whenever it, whenever you would hit a target, there would be a target sound. Whenever you like, you know, whatever, uh, you know, one of the one of the you know fifteen speech calls or whatever, <laughs> that would go off. That would stop it. Or when one of those other goofy sort of algorithms, you know, if you hit a ramp and it would go up a ramp and it would go, you know, or some kind of goofy thing like that. Whatever kind of thing it did, all those things were happening what we call monophonically, you know, one sound at a time, and that background, um, you know, drone would get would get supplanted, right? And then when the when the foreground sound was done, that that background would be restored and would keep running. So there was always sound being made, but just one sound at a time. Okay, so high speeds innovation was um, was introducing a second piece of hardware that played music. And you know, during you know during single ball play in high, in, in, in high speed, you'd have this drum track that was playing, and that would be all that would be going on. And then when you hit multiball, you got the big uh, you know you got the big do 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 you know that wonderful rocking thing, and that was a single guitar track and a single drum like a one one handed drummer and a and, and and a single guitar note at a time, and that was what that whole you know that that was high speed. That was the music for high speed. That was the first music in a pinball game. That was the first actual music. Hmm. Um, the, the the Yamaha board that I described, the, the the thing that they put into into Road Kings, that was the first game after high speed to have that second board. And the um and and it was the first game. You know, basically the Yamaha system replaced that. You know that 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 outboard.
fact, it was Bill Parrott who, it was Steve Ritchie, the designer, who wrote the song and wrote it on a guitar. Um, but, but it was Bill Parrott who, who, you know, who programmed that system and executed the, you know, um, executed the, the, the script that played those notes. Um, and like I said, that, you know, they, they only used it for, for that one game. That was the only, the only game that ever used that board. Um, the, the Yamaha board came along and supplanted it with Road Kings and, and, you know, kind of went from there. Now, how hard was it to, sorry, I'm sorry, how, how hard was it to implement speech? It, it was speech like overlaid on top of the music because it was a separate, you know, you had this separate soundboard, but you had on the System 11, you also had sound right on the CPU board too, or speech, I should say, right on the CPU board. Yeah, exactly correct. The System 11 system implemented a, a very ancient, it was like literally 1948 um, compression technology um, made by a company called Harris. Um, the algorithm, it was like an old, uh, uh, um, you know, military uh, codec that they used. Um, and uh, and the, 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 that, hard, that Harris hardware was, uh, was the, the ancillary process on the, um, on the System 11 board. So um, it was still the case that you had to feed that hardware bit by bit and and um, you know the little 6800 that was designed to, you know that was tasked to play sound was unable to do that and do any other sound at the same time you know so that 6800 was out there feeding this little Harris you know um, uh, this little Harris chip uh, making the speech you know digging stuff off a of RAM encode you know feeding it to the Harris for decoding and, and and out it would come from the speaker but that was part of the monophonic System 11 sound system okay hmm. so when the uh, when you know with both with high speed and with with you know Road King's Pinbot era stuff, the System 11 board was responsible both for the sys- goofy System 11 sounds and then also the uh, uh, the speech was coming from that board too. The the big innovation with WPC, I mean you know it's not really much of an innovation, but they just combined the sound functions all onto one onto one uh, piece of hardware. Okay, so the you know and and it and all they did was they took the the, the you know that Harris. Um, uh, 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 circuitry from the System 11 board and plopped it down onto the Yamaha soundboard, and um, and and tasked the the 6809 chip that was used on the Yamaha board with um, you know with with driving that CVSD part as well that that Harris part you know so that was that was WPC's big uh, you know sort of if you want to call it innovation that was that was where that came along. There were a couple of sort of interim steps towards that process um, in the games. Uh, Jokers era and the um, right. Jokers had a was a stereo game, the first stereo game by Williams. Well, I, I, it wasn't really stereo. There were you know there were separate you know <laughs> yeah. it, it wasn't stereo at all. It was, it was two channel mono is what it was. You know they the you know Joe Dillon called it stereo. They got a little extra marketing push out of it, but it wasn't stereo at all. Um, but uh, uh, you know so those games were sort of the the. Uh, um, uh, you know, those are the kind of interim games. It was Funhouse actually that was the first game that used the uh, you know used the real WPC uh, uh, hardware. That was you know the, the big step up in RAM and uh, and that was really you know the, at, at that point you know when you're talking Funhouse, uh, Terminator Two, um, Adams, uh, uh, well certainly Adams, but I was going to you know include the, you know the other games that were made then. Um, yeah, Fishtails, uh, Bride, Bride of Bride of Pinbot was was a you know was a fabulous example. And uh, uh, you know, there was a couple of other ones in there. Mouse, mousing around was another one. Um, all those games, including, of course, you know, you know, on, from from my book, um, you know, Adams, 
and then fishtails. That's that's my that's that's you know been my favorite for a long time. And uh, and then whitewater. Um, you know, those were the games that that uh, you know that really made WPC shine. I don't. You notice that I don't include Twilight in that list. Um, not that Twilight wasn't a very cool sounding game, but you got to understand that Twilight was intended to be the first DCS game, and we had developed you know like ninety eight percent of the entire package for the DCS system. So all of that music that you heard had been composed for a much higher fidelity synthesizer system. Basically, I wrote all that stuff in my studio with real guitars and real synthesizers, and you know with a real recording technology and and you know, digitized all of it, and it was being played back in a much, much you know. I mean, DCS is a big step forward, right? Um, in terms of, of of sound fidelity, and and you know that whole soundtrack exists in a you know in a in a in a completely other form, right? But then it turns out that the hardware wasn't ready. The DCS hardware wasn't ready, and they had to totally pull back. And they said, you know what, we need you to go back and re-engineer this system, and you know re-engineer the soundtrack for the WPC system. So then you had to go back and, and run. Basically, spent about three weeks of, you know, just doing nothing but recoding all that music and all those sound effects for for the WP system. They the one concession that we had was that we um, was that they dramatically increased the amount of RAM on the on the soundboard for for uh, uh, for Twilight Zone, and they allowed us to digitize. You know, a lot of the sound effects that we were intending to use. Uh, we were able to, to to just drop in as samples and and you know pretty much play them back as they were. But the music was all you know was a the music was just you know I, I will never be able to listen to Twilight Zone and 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 not remember what those tunes were supposed to sound like is really what it amounts to. So that's that's just a you know I've had people tell me that that that's 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 you know their favorite of my work is that is that game and and um, you know I mean it's good music and stuff. Uh, I just will never be able to, you know. That's that's my own, you know, sort of, you know, personal history that I'm baggage that I'm carrying around. You know what I'm saying? Did you save the DCS version of Twilight Zone and ever, like, after the fact, plug it into an Indiana Jones or later DCS sound card and and plug it into Twilight Zone just to see how it all worked out, implemented into the game? There, there really was no way to do that. I mean, you know, there were there were, yeah, I guess there were prototypes. You know, the the, the original whiteboard cabinet or something that Larry DeMar that lived in Larry DeMar's office, you know, you might have been able to do that with, with, with that cabinet. But um, you know, by and large there was no there was no real way to do that. Um, so uh, so So you didn't save the code. You know, it's just that you know, I mean that stuff's on tape, you know, I've, I've got that stuff on tape somewhere, you know, it's all it's all around uh, you know, some buried in buried in some you know box of dat tapes or whatever. But um uh yeah, so that that was that was Twilight Zone, but so I don't I don't necessarily include that in that in that list, but you know, rightfully I guess it would be there, and and uh, you know all those all those games, you know, um, it, you know, uh, for me I guess that period of time was certainly my most productive, and and you know the place where I probably did the best work that I you know that I did in the industry. I would say it's safe to say that you know um, the, the curve was was just at the right place, and. Um, you know, everything was really, you know, was really right to, to, to do really good work in that in that regard. It was, you know, um, you you probably remember that that right about the time that that DCS came out, and you know, we had a couple a, a couple of games in the DCS world that still, you know, that still sold really well. But that was the beginning of the end of the of the of the pinball peak, you know. And um, uh, uh, you know, Adam's Family was a twenty two thousand you know game run and. 
uh, Fishtail sold something like 14.5, and Terminator sold 16.5, and and at, uh, 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 um, you know Twilight Zone was at 16, you know, and a half or something like that. Um, but the the uh, uh, you know after that the curve dropped off. You know, uh, Getaway fell off the pace a little bit, and and uh, Star Trek Next Generation started to fall off the pace. And after that, you know, we just never you know those those huge numbers of manufactured games just started to drop and. Um, uh, you know, things started to really tighten up in the development uh, department. The engineering department really started to, to, to struggle then, and um, uh, and and you know, frankly, that was that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. You know, back in like '94, you know, end of end of you know mid early mid '94 and into '95, and I ended up leaving leaving Williams. You know, as part of the kind of you know feeling like a kind of a I guess you could almost call it like a crisis of faith or something like that in in terms of of you know what we were doing artistically and and uh, um, you know and frankly economically as well. You know we had had this great run and you know we'd all made a lot of money and uh, all of a sudden we weren't making money like that anymore and and a lot of the the, the ways that things were going um, you know weren't, weren't being supported by the economics anymore and and you know, it started to be a real struggle. Hmm. Um, and my I ultimately kind of you know I I, I thought well gee I, I need to do something transformative here and had the opportunity with Capcom and, and decided to. To make a jump, you know. To be honest, they were they offered me a lot of money to go, and and I took the money. Um, you know, I, I I can't say that it was a mistake to do that, uh, because the people that I met at Capcom, you know, continue. You know, there there are people that I met there that continue to be some of my best friends and colleagues, and and uh, you know, I'm I'm not at all sorry exactly that I that I did that. Although, you know, there were a lot of problems over there, but um, you know, that was the decision that I made at the time, and. You know, I, I I can't. You know, I had I had pretty good reasons for doing it at the time. I I can't say I wouldn't make the same you know decision again. Did you have a hand in all the machines, or just all the Capcom machines, or just Pinball Magic? Well, I was running the I I, I ran the sound department there, so I was you know I, I had management duties as well as 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 uh, you know sound creation duties. Um, the games that I kind of you know more single hand you know I, I Pinball Magic was 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 mostly done when I got there. Um, I the, the kinds of things that I did had to do with choreography and adding a few you know big sound effects and and, and things like that to the sound system. But really, that was you know that was that was ninety percent Jeff ninety maybe ninety five percent Jeff Powell's work um, in Pinball Magic. And um, you know we we added the speech stuff. I had a, a fair amount to do with that, and uh, like I say, a number of sound effects that I added. But um, you know Jeff, that 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 really was was Jeff's Jeff's package as much as anybody. Um, and and how was Capcom's hardware compared to Williams' um, W uh, you know uh, digitally compressed sound system? Oh, the uh, the um, Capcom's Capcom the the basic Capcom sound hardware was a two voice uh, uh, recording and playback device, right? So it had a fair amount of RAM, um, you know, maybe a comparable amount of RAM to DCS at that time. DCS at that point had become a four or five channel system, so we were able to just make more sounds at once. Uh, the fact that in Capcom Land we went down to two, you know, dramatically changed the, the 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 density of the sound that came out of the game. But at the same time, it also made the whole thing kind of work in a more consistent and uh, um, you know there was a kind of a clarity about those about those games that um, you know there's a certain that you know that, that was pretty attractive. Also. The, uh, the actual um, um, uh, uh, encoding and decoding of sound, the compression itself, was a much less, um, you know, what they call lossy 
compression system. It was it was basically it was it was an MPEG uh, system. It was MPEG. Uh, uh, it was the, the the original MPEG uh, audio codec, and um, I forget. I think it was a Toshiba part that we used to, to implement it. It was pretty expensive. It was ten dollars a chip, and each chip would only make sound one. You know, like I say, one one sound at a time. But it was it was reasonably you know reasonably intelligible and reasonably clear. Much more so, in my opinion, than the DCS system. The early DCS stuff, we really pushed the envelope on how you know on just on on uh, uh, you know we we allowed ourselves to get very lossy with the sound. And those first few games, you know, have a kind of a brittle quality to it. And if you listen carefully, you know, you can really hear at the ends of sounds. You know, you can hear the little wobbly and the, the warbly things that that go on that that you know that indicate that it's being compressed or, or you know um, read you know decoded. Are you are you saying that that the DCS stuff stuff was largely over compressed? Is that what you mean? Yeah, because we were trying to get as much. We were trying to get as many. You know, we basically were, and and this is always true. You know, or has been true for for many years. You know, you're 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 trading off sound quality for sound quantity. And you know, when the designer says, "Oh, we need a sound there," you know, what do you say? Well, I guess you know we'll try and find something to go in there and. And with DCS, it started to be well. You know, we've got we've got this much memory, and and you know our aggregate, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know number of bytes per sound that we that we have, or the number of bytes per second of material is this. So you know, what do you want me to take out here? And they said, well, I don't want you to take anything out. Just just get more, <laughs> you know, more seconds per per byte or whatever, right? And and that that's that's the quality knob. And and so we ended up in many cases we ended up turning that knob down pretty far. Just to get something in every slot, you know, um, and, and, uh, and you know, it was really at that point that we started saying, "Wow, we, you know, uh, this is this is how we trade, and this is how we do these trade-offs." And um, you know, eventually, you know, when RAM got cheap and we were able to put more more RAM into the games, uh, you know, that started to be become less of an issue. But you know, I mean, that continues to be a problem for you know for Playstations and and, and Xboxes and everything else. That's a, that's a you know a dedicated piece of hardware like that. Computer systems and pulling stuff off of hard drives and stuff like that 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 stops being so much of a problem. And, and most of your games, you know, your Xbox Three games, your or your Xbox Three Sixty games, and your PS Three games, those those things are are cramming massive quantities of of, of of sound in the games. And the you know the 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 sizes of projects are have just you know exploded. Not just obviously for you know for for programmers and artists as well, but you know every bit as much for sound too. You know. Um, but back in the day, you know, when we were first getting that stuff going in 93, 94, 95, you know, there just wasn't a lot of RAM around, you know. So uh, we, yeah, we, we cranked the bit rate down pretty far, and, and I think you can really hear that. The Capcom system didn't have that knob, frankly. It, it was a single bit rate, single compression solution that, you know, it was just what it was. It wasn't great, but it was, you know, on average it was pretty good. It was, you know, Jeff Powell used to say that it was about the quality of AM radio in terms of bandwidth and, and stuff like that. So, you know... And you know one of the things that I really want to stress, Clay, in 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 all of this is that the fidelity of any given system, to my mind, is is less important to the quality of the soundtrack of the overall soundtrack than the gracefulness of the choreography and the and the attention to detail that you're able to bring. And you know, it's my opinion that that you know if you listen to a game for about a minute, you have have you know, you've been your your brain has properly been invited into the sound world that that game presents to you, and if it presents a consistent, uh, you know, face, and 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 you know, all of those old games do, 
adequate, you know, level of information to pass from the game to the to the listener and to the to the player, and and it's a, and it's a it's a it's a compelling experience. It always was a compelling experience. You know, when you when you like pull out one of those old um, uh, Mame games or something like that, and you you play like you know Joust or something like that on Mame. Um, you know, you listen to those sounds, and you just go, "Oh my God, this is a disaster!" God, listen to that! Oh, it's horrible! It's horrible! But thirty seconds later, you're you're remembering the game. You're flapping. You're you know you're bouncing around. Here comes the pterodactyl. You know, those things are they and 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 they and and you respond to those things the way that you did when you played that game in 1982. And you and and you just do. Your brain makes those adjustments even today, where you know we've got five dot one you know five dot one surround games going on and fabulous fidelity and incredible attention to detail, you know, as much attention to detail as, as any movie soundtrack gets, you know, are going into games these days. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's great. But it doesn't diminish the, the work that was done on those old games, you know. And when you go and play those old games, you know, you're able to, you're, you're just as able today as to have a compelling experience as you were when those games came out. That's, that's you know, that's, that's my opinion. So now, when you say you're, you're talking about RAM all the time, what you really mean is EEPROM space, the ROM space that that you can store these sounds in. And RAM, it is. It was EEPROMs. You're absolutely correct. Okay. I, I just wanted to make that clear that that you know from System Eleven, you you had a limited number of EEPROMs, and then when you went to WPC, those jumped up. You know, you had larger EEPROMs and more of them, and then when you went to DCS, digitally compressed sound, that then the EEPROMs got even larger, and there was even more of them. That's exactly correct. That's that's you're you're you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I just wanted to make it clear for when people I knew what you were talking about, but I just wanted because ultimately what's in the EEPROMs ends up in RAM. So it's just you know I just got to make it clear so people understand. You know. Yeah, to, to people who are going to be concerned on that level, yeah, specifically the hardware were, were were EEPROMs that we were using. You're absolutely correct. Okay. Now, how was it working with, uh, you know, at um, at Capcom working with you know with Python and Mark Ritchie and and the designers. Um, well, you know, all those guys, I, you know, I'd really worked with all those guys before, and, and so I, you know, I knew how they worked, and I knew, I knew kind of what they were, what they were after a little bit. Um, you know, to be honest, the, uh, the, 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 the failure at Capcom, you know, was certainly related to the fact that the industry itself was in, was in a decline at that point, and their timing was just spectacularly bad. But even, you know, even, even, I, you know, I think that they probably could have survived had, they not spent so much money early on in such an elaborate way, um, and they really did. Um, you know, the, the way that I've always described it is that they threw the party before they built the product. There will never again be a facility as elegant and well equipped to manufacture pinball games as that facility. Um, you know, it was just it was it was unbelievably up to date. Um, you know, built by with Japanese money. Uh, by by people who understood manufacturing in a very very clear way, you know all of that stuff was just you know absolutely top shelf. But you know given the legal problems that they had, they 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 struggled to uh, you know um, Williams's uh, you know lawsuits against them and and preventing you know essentially preventing a, a lot of the work that um, you know that the the ex Williams designers had had done there early on, uh, kind of forced them onto these onto these tracks that you know. You know, essentially required them to hold their breath for a couple of years. So all that stuff was going on, and that was certainly a legitimate problem. But you know, uh, by wait, the time wait, they wait. got to wait, what do you mean by the loss? What lawsuits was Williams bringing against Capcom? Law, uh, Williams Williams uh, sued Capcom 
uh, the details of which I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to reconstruct exactly, but uh, uh, Williams sued Capcom for patent infringement on on a number of different uh, uh, different patents. Um, I'm afraid you're going to have to check in with with, with Python or Bill Futzenruder or, or, or Mark Ritchie to to get those details. But there was there was extensive litigation that was going on um, as early as 1993 and extending all the way into 19 you know the end of 95 96. And by the time that had happened, by the time, by the time, actually, frankly, by the time I got there in 1995, you know, uh, uh, Tsujimoto and the and the Capcom, uh, you know, corporate people had sunk, you know, tens of millions of dollars into this into this operation, and they still didn't have a game to show. Now, you know, they were they were they weren't really practicing any kind of like, you know, they were really in startup mode at that point, and and they and and money, they had plenty of money. Capcom had a lot of money at that point, and and um, you know they paid their bills on time, and they had tremendous relationships with their suppliers. You know they had they had um, you know parts suppliers in the shop helping the engineers design design the games and design the components because you know they knew they were going to get paid right on the spot, and that was really happening. You know I mean they would pay they were they were paying cash, they were paying you know they were paying you know they were paying right away. They were paying on receipt of, in, of invoices. And then all of a sudden, in June or July of 1995, that stopped being the case when they started to pull back and say, you know what, this is costing us way too much. We've got to rein this spending in. And uh, one of the ways they did it was to implement a much less lenient policy towards the suppliers, and that support dried up. And suppliers turned from, you know, from collaborators to adversaries. And, uh, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of bad feelings erupted as a result of, of a very uh, kind of a parsimonious, in my opinion, parsimonious uh, uh, cash management strategy. Now, I, you know that was that was the view from the sound department, right? Um, and uh, the details to support that are are, are all anecdotal. And uh, you know, I, I I go way out on a limb, and you know, somebody from the from the accounting department of that of, of that time would probably be able to come back with with chapter and verse on how that wasn't true, maybe. But that that was that was very much the perception in the shop that that you know all of a sudden our suppliers just were saying. You know, to the engineers, guys. You know, you're not paying our bills. We can't. You know, we, we, we can't support you in the way that we've supported. So, but that was a big loss. But the you know the fact of the matter was that that um, you know it was a it was a pretty it was a it was a it was a pretty good party that was going on at Capcom, and they were spending a lot of money, and um, uh, you know, and 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 it took them you know every bit of three three you know basically three full years. To uh, get the first product, you know, the first pinball product out there, and you know, they did a lot of, of, of tremendous innovation. There was a, just, you know, there were, there were, you know, pinball magic was a, you know, that was a very strong piece, and um, uh, uh, unfortunately, it, it, it got released really at, uh, you know, at a time where the market had significantly declined, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I, you know, did they sell? Three thousand of those things? Did they sell? You know, maybe maybe thirty-three hundred. According to the Internet Pinball Database, they only sold twelve hundred. Uh, okay, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll buy that. Um, and they probably lost money on every game because of what they, you know, of how much the, uh, you know, the actual bill of materials ended up being. Um, so you know, it was a, uh, uh, um, it was a, it was a dicey situation. They had put a lot of money into this very slick hardware. You know, the soundboard was a great example. They, they. You know that soundboard cost them something like 120 dollars in parts, and you know that's about 30 dollars more expensive than the DCS board was at the time. Um, so you know, I, I, 
making those kinds of decisions, you know, really using Cadillac components and, and um, you know, buying solutions that were in, embedded in silicon rather than, you know, finding finding some cheap ways around those problems or, or just, you know, having a more modest goal in mind, um, you know, set them back in terms of bill, bill of materials. You know, like I said, they were, they, you know, the, the games were, were too expensive to manufacture, too expensive to buy the parts for, and even with the most, you know, the most sophisticated and modern, you know, manufacturing techniques that were available to pinball at the time, uh, they were still, um, you know, they, they were losing money on those games. So, um, so, you know, it really was a kind of a doomed effort in that regard, and, 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 the, and, and that, um, that realization, you know, really permeated everything that was happening at Capcom. Um, had already been permeating it for you know for a, for a while when I got there. Um, you know the big push to get that first game out. Um, you know we we had a lot of euphoria over that game, and we still enjoy that game a lot. Um, uh, but uh, you know the economics of it were just never really there. And uh, and eventually, you know, I mean, when the money dries up, then you know then you're kind of done. And it it took you know it took another year for us to. To, to realize that it was done, but you know, we were. We, it was. It was not a. Uh, um, it was not a pretty picture, really. You know, from the beginning, and and by you know mid 1996, everybody was just kind of sitting around, going, "Okay, do we look for another job? Do we wait for a severance package? What do we do here?" You know, and uh, um, you know, you asked me what games I specifically. I my my uh, um, the two things that were completely on my on my plate to do were airborne. And then uh, the game that, that I that, you know that only the only the prototypes were ever made, which was Kingpin. Those were the, those are the two games that I you know that I was responsible for the soundtrack for. Did you have anything to do with the Zingy Bingy project? No, never, no, not at all. No, did you see it? Um, yeah, I saw the Whitewood. I, I I saw some of the drawings and stuff like that. Um, uh, there was a uh, um, uh, you know, there's a pretty strong uh, sense. Uh, you know that was a, that was a, you know obviously it was a pretty controversial project um, and uh, and I guess that uh, you know that the the the, the faction uh, at Capcom who thought that it was you know a completely inappropriate thing to, to put out there as a pinball game uh, you know I suppose you could call it you could call that faction the prudes <laughs> you know because it's a prudish position to take but um, you know I guess I have to count myself amongst those those people I just thought you know you know why, who who's going to buy this game you know right um, and you know, these days we're in a completely different place, right? You know, we're in a place where games don't have to be out in the, uh, you know, don't have to be out on location to make money. They can go into people's basements, you know, and, and people, you know, there are there are collectors and 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 you know, su- there's sufficient interest in the game, you know, in and of its own self that you know that you could maybe get away with a game like that in this in this time. But you know, what's uh, you know the economics of it in 1996? You know, seems you know we were just kind of scratching our heads. And you know, I mean, people scratched our heads. You know, people scratched their heads about Rudy, right? And that was a that was a huge hit. You know, um, and people scratched their heads about Pinball 2000, and that ended up, you know, being the last gasp, right? So you you know, you never know about an innovation. You never know about you know something that's different from the way that we've always done. And Zingy Bingy certainly was different from the way that we had always done it. You know, so um, you know there was you know Python was not a shy guy. You know, and he he. He had a uh, you know an artistic temperament that you know that that produced some fabulous innovations in pinball. You know, I mean, you know, pinball to this day is still you know one of my you know I, I I think you know for the time you know looked at for for what it was when it was 
you know, still has to be listed right up there with the with you know with with some of the most innovative thinking in pinball. Um, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm talking about you know in terms of, of conceptually and and you know what is the you know what is the sort of the message and the artistic message that's that's being put out here. What kind of an experience are we trying to give people? And um, you know, Pinbot was pretty pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, before we start talking about Stern and how you got there, what what was your, like your favorite System Eleven game that you worked on or your favorite experience? I know you had a you probably worked directly with Elvira and and maybe some of the people from Adam's family, right? Taxi, Taxi, Taxi was your favorite. Taxi is absolutely my favorite game. Why? Um, why? That's another Python influence. It is. It is another Python game. I, you know, I, I, I guess Taxi is, you know, the, the my, my, um, my love of Taxi. And by the way, I got to tell you that that, you know, I, I still own several pinball games, but they're all kind of on loan except my Taxi. My Taxi is still in the basement, and I, and I do, and I do have a Maryland Taxi prototype. Um, but. Uh, uh, Taxi is uh, Taxi was a game that started life as um, as a as a game that was going to be about Grand Prix racing, which I thought was a pretty cool idea. And it was really Python's idea to, to scrap the whole race car thing and and go with a uh, you know and go with this with this kind of goofy you know offbeat theme, right? And um, uh, there was something about it when, when, when they first presented, you know, when Mark and Python sat me down and said, okay, it's not going to be Super Grand Prix anymore. It's going to be Taxi. And, and I just went, what? And they explained the whole thing to me about the passengers and picking up passengers and earning toward a jackpot. And, you know, and, and I just, you know, I looked at this, you know, the, the, the Whitewood was done. You know, the figure eight ramps were already there. And so you were, you were looking at what sure looked like a racetrack to me, you know. But, um, and I just sat there and looked at it, and, and they had pictures of the characters on the walls, and I just, you know, and I just started laughing, and I just said, you know, this is, this is crazy, but it might just be, you know, crazy enough to work. And <laughs> I just, you know, we just had so much fun making that game. It was, you know, doing those characters and doing the voices and some of the characters that didn't make the cut. Um, uh, uh, we, you know, we just had a blast. The main theme, um, I don't know whether you remember it, but it's the best thing I ever wrote. It is the best thing I ever wrote. Huh. Now, what characters didn't make the taxi theme? Um, the only one that I that that um, that comes to mind was a character. Uh, there was a uh, um, actually there were two. One of them was uh, was one that we never really came up with a satisfactory name for, and that's kind of that, that's partly why. But that game came out in mid-1988, and the movie of the year, the, the previous year, was Tootsie. And so one of the characters was going to be something, you know, was, was basically a takeoff on, to- on Tootsie. And we, were, and we were doing a thing where basically, we, and I'm going to step away from my, from my phone just a little bit to do this for you, but it basically was sort of like a, Yoo-hoo, yoo-hoo, taxi, taxi, taxi! You know, and it was that kind of, that, that kind of thing that, that, that we were trying to get, get across. And we thought it was hilarious, and it, was, it worked pretty well for a while, but... You know, there weren't enough slots in the game for it, and, and you know, it just, it just didn't make the cut. Um, that was one, and then there was a, you know, I, I, you, I we haven't talked talked about this, but I, I spent, when I was a kid, I lived in India for six years, and, and, and one of the things that you, you know, you'll see through many, many of my games all through the years is uh, this fellow who does an actually very nice Indian accent, 
and uh, that is something that uh, we always try to uh, you know get into the games and and uh, one of the characters we you know sort of spoke with an Indian accent so uh, again it was wasn't something that uh, you know just just didn't rise to the level of, of necessity I guess you could call it and, and probably just as well you know uh, these days you, you think, think twice about stuff like that hmm. but um, so uh, those those are the two that I can think of that didn't that didn't make the cut but uh, you know Gorby was just great you know Steve Ritchie did that voice and you know Pinbot was an obvious one and, and the whole Maryland thing was you know was what it was or Maryland or Lola or whatever you want to call her you know by the time we got it done and um, uh, Santa Claus was a was a fun one and and uh, um, yeah it was just a you know it was a, a you know all those characters you know we had a lot of fun with the characters and we had a lot of fun with the with the rules and. Um, uh, uh, and and again, like I say, that the, the the music, you know, basically, you know, at the time, my favorite artist was Little Feet, and uh, and Mark basically said, go go write me a Little Feet tune, and so that was really where I was at, um, you know, musically, and and uh, and it's just a, it's a, it's you know, the factory when 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 that game was on the line, and you know, we would go home at you know seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night or whatever. Um, and and listening to fifty taxis being burned in in that factory, all playing that song, I mean, you just can't even believe how awesome and how wonderful the factory sounded while that game was being manufactured. The factory sounded that was as good as the factory ever sounded was was when that game was being manufactured. Hmm. So you know, it's a sentimental thing with me because I like that kind of music um, the most. Uh, but uh, you know, that's that's really the, the you know that's the long and the short of it. That was my favorite. You know, I mean, it's a it's a nice play field, it's a cool play field, but. Um, uh, you know the rules are what they are, and, and stuff. You know, it's a it's a, a much simpler game than you know than some of the later ones, but uh, um, still has a just a real soft spot in my heart. Okay, we're going to take a break talking with Chris Grainer, the sound man at Williams, Capcom, and Stern Pinball, and we'll be right back after this message. Deep in the forests of eastern Canada, you will find something well groundbreaking, and something that's very very pinball. But something that's really, really small? Presenting classic Playfield reproductions. Two guys in their basements. We've got the passion, we've got the gear, and we've got the quality. Doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts. Classic Playfield reproductions. Playfields. Back glasses. Plastic sets. On the web at classicplayfields.com. All right, we're back with Chris Grainer, the sound man for Williams, Capcom, and Stern Pinball. Did you get to work with any of the, you know, the licensed theme personalities, you know, like Elvira or Arnold Schwarzenegger for Terminator 2 or any of the Adams Family cast? We did. We, uh, um, I met, our, her name is Cassandra Peterson, is who Elvira actually is, and uh, I, I went to L.A. I had a, had a, a you know, couple of great sessions with her, and, and she was really easy and fun to work with and really enjoyed it. Um, uh, uh, declined to actually um, meet with us. It was a, a, a pretty funny story, and not sure what the, uh, you know, what the, what the rating on this interview is, but uh, we, we had to, we had to, we had to go some to, uh, 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 to get him to even get in front of a, any kind of a microphone at all, and and uh, uh, he didn't uh, agree ever to uh, record for us with us. But um, basically, the the uh, soundtrack for the original Terminator 2 game was made uh, uh, in his trailer while he was on the set of Terminator 2. And uh, Lee Orloff, the uh, the sound recordist for the movie, actually. 
actually conducted the session. You know, he worked from our script, and, you know, it was Terminator, so it wasn't like we had to worry too much about expression or anything like that. But, you know, he went through and read all of our stuff, and we got everything there, and, and you know, and they did a great job. They caught a bunch of, you know, they caught a, a, you know, a truck driving by and made him re-record a couple of lines and stuff, and, you know, they, they were very careful and professional about it. And we got a great, great, you know, uh, recording out of it. But at the end of the session, you know, Lee Orloff goes to him, anything else? And, and you could hear Arnold kind of change character, and he goes, yeah, fuck you, asshole. And, of course, <laughs> that was the first, you know, he didn't even say it in character, you know. He, he just said it, you know. And it was pretty clear that he'd never wanted to do this project and, um, uh, uh, and was, you know, was kind of pissed off about this. And, you know, I basically just felt personally addressed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by that line, and we just, you know, I mean, we just all went, yes, yes, <laughs> you know, it was one of the great moments in, in, in pinball development history for him to have thrown that in, and of course, it was the first thing that went into, you know, that went into the game, you know, and there's a, you know, of course, there are apocryphal ROMs out there that have, uh, you know, that have that phrase in it that you can get, you know, for the, uh, uh, the possible response is random feature, you know, if you get nothing, that's what it says, you know, so... so why didn't that actually end up in the actual <laughs> final ROM? You know, oh, well, like I said, pinball was all—you know—pinball always had a bad, uh, um, you know, had a bad reputation in the community, right? Even in, in Chicago, where uh, you know where it's manufactured, and a lot of people were employed by that business. You know, the feeling was that it was—you know—there was somehow immoral, or, or you know, like it was—it like, was kind of equated with gambling devices. And of course, there—you know—there had been gambling, you know, on games and stuff like that. So. So they had a bad reputation and, and had to live that reputation down every day. So the idea that, that we would put a, a you know, cursing into, into a game like that, that was just, you know, that was completely, you know, there was no way. There was just, you know, no way at all. Um, you know, for our basements, absolutely. You know, my game said that. <laughs> you know, no question about it. But, um, uh, you know, not, not, for, not for public release. No, you, know, there's, you know, there's no such thing, you know. The Sopranos, I guess, was the first game that actually had a kind of an R, you know, it had a setting that was R, right? Right. So, um, so we we did, you know, come to that thinking later on, and you know, and you know, give Python some credit for for you know pushing that envelope with Zingy Bingy, you know, ten years before. So, um, but yeah, yeah, 1991, no way, you know, that was not going to happen. We were riding a, a crest of success at that point, you know. We sold, you know, we sold 16,700, you know, uh, Terminator twos, and. and uh, you know, I, you know, who knows what the movie? You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's the, the signature line, right? But right. Um, you know, the movie people probably wouldn't have cared much. But you know, the pinball pinball community never would have bought it. Red and Ted Roadshow. There was, um, you know, the 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 country star, the singer for that. How how hard was it to implement her songs into that theme, into that pinball system, into the DCS system? Well, she only had the one. Um, she only had the one. Uh, uh, a song that was, you know, that every little thing song that was uh, uh, that was actually in the game. Uh, the rest of it was just, you know, was just speech, kind of like any other project. She was she was great. Carlene Carter is her name, and uh, you know, she did a great job. But uh, really, only had the one song, um, and uh, you know, uh, that dropped in. Um, uh, you know, that that pretty much dropped in as a as a like an extended um, uh, piece of of speech, and uh, that was that was pretty much how it worked. And was it harder to do a license theme during this during the pre DCS time where you were using the the Yamaha you know YM twenty one fifty one synthesizer or was that you know easy to do? That was a lot. That was actually a lot. It was a lot harder to do the license stuff because there'd be so so much material. But um, 
you know, ultimately, I think that doing the uh, the original titles was was quite a bit more rewarding. Now, how how did you make the transition to, over to Stern? How did that at all come about? Well, like I said, I was working with uh, uh, incredible technologies and um, uh, running their sound department. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, several of my old colleagues at at, at Williams Valley Midway, um, you know, had also left, um, you know, left left that that shop and started their own shops. And I started doing work on the side for them. And I was pretty, you know, pretty upfront with Incredible Technologies about the fact that I was doing that, and it worked out okay because they, frankly, didn't have, you know, the golf, you know, needs for a, for a soundtrack in terms of golf were, uh, were, you know, were, were pretty limited, and and uh, um, you know, I just uh, frankly wasn't that busy. But um, so I had, you know, I had I had the, the the brain cells and the bandwidth to do it, and I was doing side work, and eventually I got so much side work that, um, you know, it, it was pretty clear that I should just, you know, go back out on my own and, and do all that other work, and. I actually did some work for Incredible, you know, for for a year or two after that. Anyway, um, but uh, uh, the the stern piece of that was uh, um, uh, was was a Pat Lawler, um, you know, call that I got while I was working at Incredible, kind of in this mode. And he basically said, "We'd like it to we'd like to bring you on. It's a very rushed project. You know, can we basically borrow you from Incredible for you know for for three months?" And uh, I took that to Elaine Hodgson. The, uh, the CEO of, of Incredible Technologies, and you know they're um, they're old friends with with Gary Stern, and um, basically we worked out a you know we worked we worked it out. You know there was a way for us to, to you know they they were able to spare me for that amount of time, and and soon after you know that, basically about the time that that project finished was the time that my relationship as an employee of Incredible was was coming to an end. Um, so uh, um, uh, you know I, I then left and. Uh, it was the uh, Simpsons project that Dan Forden found himself kind of overbooked uh, during, and I uh, um, basically picked up the slack from him and kind of finished that project for him. And uh, at that point, I was in a position to do it, and uh, and I just started doing, you know, I, I started doing all the all their all their work at that point. They uh, they kept coming back to me. Now, how was the hardware system? Like, you know, you were using the the Yamaha YM2151, then you were using uh, digitally compressed sound, and then you were using the Capcom system. Now you're using the Stern hardware system. Was that a step forward or a step backwards? Well, it, you know, it's 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 like you know, like I said, you know, fidelity is a is a kind of in the eyes of the beholder. Um, but uh, in many ways, the BSMT hardware system was uh, um, was a step back. It was a uh, it was a sampler-based system, uh, uh, you know, 12, 12 uh, uh, you know, monophonic sampling voices uh, that we would have to create the samples for and, and, and play back. Um, it was not unsophisticated for a sampler, but it was just a sampler. So um, that was that was essentially, you know, what you know that was that was what we had to work with. Um, and uh, you know, that said, the uh, the the, the um, the, the amplifier and the speakers were as you know were, were as 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 good or you know they had put as much money you know into those as the uh, uh, as Williams or, or or Capcom ever had and um, so you know it uh, you know the sound of the of the games themselves and the sounds of the samples were you know were okay you know they were pretty good samples and um, you know as time went on we made a couple of incremental improvements to that system and uh, of course you know there with uh, um, uh, World Poker Tour, you know, we made a, a pretty giant leap forward at that point. But, um, you 
system. Yeah, I would say that the uh, the stern system wasn't nearly as good as as the Williams DCS. You know, uh, in yeah, there's no question that, that that DCS was vastly superior to the BSMT system uh, at that point. But you know, you got to remember BSMT was technology uh, that was developed in you know something like 1991 and 1992. Um, and again, you know, the very conservative uh, nature of of pinball hardware development. Uh, you know, dictates that you just get as much mileage out of that um, out of that hardware as you can. And frankly, the uh, the impetus to change was uh, the fact that they were going to stop manufacturing the parts. They were going to stop, man- you know, first TI was going to stop manufacturing the BSMT, and then Motorola stopped manufacturing the 6809. So, you know, I mean, we were done. You know, they they had to do something else, and and that was how the the, the WP the, the WPT system you know came to be. And the WPT system, you're saying that's what they started using with World Poker Tour. Yeah, I just I call it a WPT system. I can't remember what we actually called it on the you know the, the, that that next generation uh, pinball hardware system. The you know the system built on the Atmel technology. But now you're saying that the 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 older version, the BM the BMST, was not like how you program the Yamaha synthesizer. It was more like you you know design the sounds on standard instruments and standard recorded them and then sampled them into the into the into a recording device no if, if that's how you understood it i misspoke it was in fact almost identical to the way that the yamaha system worked um in fact the the the, the syntax of programming um uh programming music and programming sound was was so close to identical that the differences don't really matter so the Yamaha chip and the BMST were essentially the same thing. They, like I said, the user interface between those two systems were almost identical. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So now that's unlike the digitally compressed sound at Williams, where basically you'd write everything on an ample or you know on whatever instrument you wanted, and then just basically recorded it, and then it got transposed and compressed into MPEG format. Exactly correct. Exactly correct. So now, when you were working on, like, say you were working on, you worked on an all-licensed theme. Again, you're working on Terminator 3 with Stern. So, you know, you got Arnold again, and, of course, you're working with Simpsons. Uh, how, you know, how were the personalities? Because you, you had to record with these people, I assume, right? Um, the, again, the, uh, uh, the opportunity to work with the Simpsons people, uh, uh, we, we were not in to the studio to uh, to work with the Simpsons people, unfortunately, um, nor were we invited again to uh, uh, to you know to the Terminator Three set. Um, however, I think that both both of those uh, um, uh, both of those projects were very well supported by the studios, and um, surprisingly, Arnold was uh, was very excited <laughs> to to read our script. It was a much more lengthy script, um, and uh, you know much more extensive. And you know he did a great job. He was uh, you know he it was as though you know, it was it was as though the, the previous uh, you know uh, issues that we had had really hadn't happened at all. So uh, hmm. that was kind of kind of amusing. But uh, uh, with regard to the Sopranos, we had a you know had a had a wonderful um, you know two day event in, uh, in in New York City to, to, record? to record that material, and uh, you know that was a that was a tremendous project for uh, uh, for the sound sound department for, for for me for the sound guy. How, how about how was like say Elvis in Lord of the Rings? Well, uh, Lord of the Rings was all of the all of the Lord of the Rings stuff that we had. I guess we did. You know, I guess um, I'm glad you mentioned Lord of the Rings because it uh, it allows me to mention John Rhys Davies, who was um, you know as Sala was the uh, uh, you know was was uh, was one of the one of the great voices from Indiana Jones, 
and was the one guy that we actually got in for Indiana Jones to, to do sound. And um, that was another project that I, you know, I have a lot of a lot of affection for. So John Rice Davies was one of the fellows that read for us, as was the guy who played Frodo. You know, the, both of those two characters read for us for uh, um, you know for Lord of the Rings, and that turned out to be a great project. The rest of the sound from Lord of the Rings, or the rest of the speech work, uh, you know, came from you know from excerpts from the movie. I, Elijah Wood, thank God. Okay, boy, I'm so happy that I didn't completely lose that. Um, so those were those were pretty cool. Uh, that was you know Lord of the Rings was a pretty pretty great project all the way around. They were the movie studio again was very supportive. Now on Simpsons. I, on Simpsons, it seemed like there was a couple characters' voices that were missing. Was there a reason for that? Well, they only gave us uh, access to... Basically, we were only able to work with three actors, and so we, we basically... You know, we missed Marge, right? Um, because, right. Uh, because the person who does Marge is a... Uh, um, you know, was somebody who only did seven or eight voices, and so we ended up pick, pick, picking uh, Nancy Cartwright, who does Bart, um, and Dan Castellaneta, who did you know who did Homer, and um, and the guy the guy who did the comic book guy and the uh, the deeper tone guy the uh, um, also does um, uh, uh, the, the the Indian voice. Uh, so we picked those three because they they ended up giving us you know something like sixty five different characters or something like that. So that you know that turned out to be you know really what we want. Um, that was that was probably the finest bit of speech um, integrating you know a licensed speech theme with a with a pinball theme that there ever was um and 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 credit for that work solely and and fully and happily from my perspective goes to keith johnson because it was his script from top to bottom you know he had a very elaborate set of rules for that game and uh was an absolute simpsons you know manic simpsons fan and nut and um did great great research and uh the the uh you know the the links between the Simpsons television episodes and the rules of the game and the way that the speech supported those links really has, has you know, to my mind, has no equal in, in pinball history. It, it was just, a, it was a masterpiece of, of, of script writing. Hmm. Now, how about Elvis? How was Elvis? Elvis was a, Elvis was a great project. Um, we, we recruited a, um, we recruited uh, from Graceland uh, on their recommendation their favorite Elvis performer, his name is Jamie Aaron Kelly, and he lives in the middle of, of nowhere, Iowa, but he is, he's got a touring Elvis show, and he, he was amazing because he came in and said, so you want Elvis, which Elvis do you want? You know, do you want the lame jacket Elvis, or do you want the black leather jacket Elvis, or do you want the, pant, the, the, you know, the, the sequined uh, pantsuit Hawaii Elvis? And he was able to do quite distinct versions of each one of those things for us, and, um, you know, it was awesome, but... Um, you know the speech the speech work itself was not the main um, push there, and uh, uh, you know he did some nice singing for us as well. It just wasn't a, I, it was a it was a fun project and neat to do and stuff. Um, but in terms of, of 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 you know interactive with Elvis himself, it wasn't quite as as detailed as as uh, you know as, as a lot of projects might be because of some of the licensing concerns that we had. We were we were very very limited in in terms of what Graceland was able to to let us use. So. Um, you know, we were kind of limited to taking clips out of out of some TV specials that they that they solely owned the rights to, um, and that was the only way that we could avoid paying royalties to to the record companies to RCA. So that was kind of the situation that we were in. Now, when you went to World Poker Tour in the new sound system, how much different was it 
uh, you know, doing sound for that compared to the BMST system? Well, that was really coming back into a, uh, um, you know, back into a more of a DCS kind of environment, and that was an environment that we designed uh, um, specifically, you know, to to look like DCS um, because that interface made a lot of sense to me and and, and to all of us. And um, so, you know, it was it was once again looking at at, at you know compressed sound and uh, you know multiple streams of sound. I think we had five or six tracks available at one time, and. Uh, um, and it was, you know, certainly the highest fidelity stuff that I had ever had a chance to work with in a pinball context. And, uh, you know, I think, I, you know, that I thought that game just sounded spectacular. It was a wonderful sounding game. It, do you think that system is better than the Williams DCS? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I, you know, I mean, in terms of just, just, you know, looking at nothing but sound production, that was definitely uh, superior. You know, I, I'm a... Uh, I'm not enough. I never have been enough of an expert on, on you know, pinball... On, on pinball technology to know about, um, you know, drivers or, or switch, you know, detection and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, you know, not, not really able to answer that in a comprehensive way, but certainly with regard to sound, it's a, it was, it was um, you know, the most advanced sound system really ever. Now, when you were doing sound on the BMST system, you know, or, or not sound, but what digital voices... And that was probably similar to what you were doing in in System Eleven. What I mean, did you have just a limited amount of space for actual digitized sound voices compared to like what you have in World Poker Tour, right? Um, with with World Poker Tour, we had um, we actually moved to to flash parts at that point, and we had a, a pretty um, you know really quite a bit of memory. We had something like thirty two megs of, of of storage capacity there. Um, and that was just a giant step forward, plus the algorithms that we were able to use to get into a kind of a, you know, an MP3 era, you know, level of, of encoding meant that, you know, the fidelity was just vastly, vastly improved. Um, and so we had a, you know, pretty low bit rate and quite a bit of, of memory to, to store stuff in and uh, uh, the capability of playing back all those channels at once. So, the, you know, the WPT system really, uh, you know, just, just in, in, in so many different ways in terms of, of Algorithmic sophistication, as well as as just capacity, uh, was was a you know was a giant giant step forward. The uh, the amount of RAM on the BSMT system is uh, you know was was considerably more limited. Uh, uh, so yeah, I mean we were, we were talking about um, four eight megabit parts, so you know a total of of, of four megabytes of RAM uh, or, or of memory, you know of, of EPROMs uh, in the BSMT land versus thirty two megs. Uh, in the in the in the WPT system, so really, you know, memory and and computational capability, you know, really drove all that stuff. Talked about the this you know the music end of it and how you how you created the music, but we really didn't talk much about you know working with uh, the people to get the vocals, like on the on the games that were non licensed. Um, you know, like the the how, you know where do where do all the voices come from? Or you know, like let's just take uh, let's take Pinbot for example. Where do the voices for Pinbot come from? The voice for Pinbot was a was a, a an, uh, um, you know was was essentially achieved through a, a, a you know a, a very a long standing and traditional electronic you know manipulation technique called vocoding, and um, you know which is why you get that kind of machine like uh, sound you. You know, you hear it. You hear it in in bad pop music a lot, and and uh, you know the uh, the kind of robotic voices that you've heard over the years. It's a real, you know. It's, I mean, it really, it's just a, it's it's basically a cliche. And there's a 
there's a there's a box that you can use to basically make anybody's voice sound like that and it um it it just coincidentally it was Barry Ausler's voice who we used to uh uh through that process and he was the voice of Tinbot so um hmm. uh and uh, I might add that he was also then you know 2 years later or a year and a half or so later he was also the voice of Pinbot when we when he reprised that voice in Taxi. So, um, uh, so, 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 yeah, that's that's how that worked out. Okay, let's let's take another one. Like, uh, say, Earthshaker. Who were the voices in that? Well, let's see if if I uh, if I can recall correctly the um, the, uh, the 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 main voice in in Earthshaker. There were I guess there was there was a you know there was sort of a DJ voice. It's Sunny Drive time. That guy. Um, mm-hmm. That was Mark Ritchie. Um, and then the girl, um, the you know the California Valley girl, whatever you know, that's kind of how we, right. we thought of her. Yep. Um, sh- that voice uh, was a character, and I think she made a couple of other appearances in a couple of other games. I don't remember um, offhand which ones they were, but but she was a um, she was a uh, 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 she was a lady who worked for Williams for um, for a fairly short amount of time. But she was just one of our favorite people, and she's she's remained one of my close friends. Um, she is uh she's an Indian lady and her name is Somia Netrabile. She's a really neat person. She was an artist, a fabulous painter and a uh she was working at Williams as a technical writer um uh, uh back in in 1988-89 and uh and she was available and and had just the right sort of attitude to uh, uh to pull that to pull that character off. So she was great and uh Mark, you know, Mark's done uh um voices you know the, the the general answer to your question is that is that people around the shop um you know basically did the voices for the non licensed games um with uh with almost no exceptions um as i'm as I'm sort of scanning down the list here you know you had asked about uh about earthshaker that was that was that was that way um whirlwind funhouse fishtails uh all of those games um were done with in house voices um Whirlwind, uh, the, uh, the the voice for um, you know the the announcer through that that went around going the storm was coming, return right. to your homes. Yeah. that's Ed Boone. That's Ed Boone. Um, uh, and uh, and Funhouse, uh, that was uh, you know I'm not sure whether this is a big secret. I, I sort of thought this was common knowledge, but Ed Boone is the voice of Rudy. Um, hmm. And uh, I might add that there was a uh, uh, a very uh, lengthy process that we went through in. Um, in attempting to, to to get Ed to deliver that voice in just exactly the right way, um, he had said the phrase that we that we struck uh, in our first recording session with that game, um, and and I think that there were about eight or ten of them, you know, before we were all said and done, before we really you know felt like we had gotten it right. The first phrase that he said that we that we all said, yeah, we wanted all to sound like this, was the phrase, "Quit playing with the clock," and. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, many, many of the other phrases that we, that we started with, you know, in sort of version one in that game, just didn't have that same quality to it. It was, had a kind of a frenetic, a, a, a sort of a near hysteria or a panic, uh, you know, his voice kind of cracked a little bit and, and it just, you know, it really took us a long, long time, uh, and took Ed a long, long time, who was a, you know, Ed's got a fabulous ear and he's a, you know he's an amazing mimic. He's he's got a number of really very very strong impressions. If you ever get a chance to talk to him, he'll he'll do a few of them for you. But uh, he is a you know he's a funny guy. He's got a great sense of timing and like I say a great ear. But but um, we were really after a very very specific sound. And 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 Pat uh, Lawler and Larry Demar, you know, who were really the the um, you know the masterminds behind that game. Uh, you know, and and I and Ed, you know, just really spent a lot of time. 
Tales was the other one. Uh, there were a number of there were a number of, of voices in uh, in Fish Tales because you know of course we had the uh, the multiple um, you know the, the random feature about how big your fish was and lying about the fish. Um, the uh, the guy who says biggest fish I ever saw that was George Petro who was a you know was a, a video game programmer and uh, um, you know uh, the, the uh, designer uh, behind Terminator. Terminator 2. And what, what do you just pull these guys out of the hallway when they're walking by or something? You just yank them out of the hallway. Hey, say this for me or something. How do you get these guys? We certainly started that way. And, and uh, you know, once it became known that, that we were doing that, uh, you know, once it, be known, it became known that people, that, you know, that we were just using people, you know, who worked at, at the factory or whatever, worked, in, worked, worked in, the, in, the, in the building to do the voices, you know, we got people to come and volunteer for us. And, and, um, you know, we we used a few. We used uh, Ken Fidesz's secretary on a couple of voices. She was the uh, the voice of the of the cutie in in, in Taxi. She was the one who said, "You who Taxi?" You know, that was that was uh, uh, um, you know Ken's secretary, Kathy Klein. Huh. And um, uh, like I say, George Petro was a you know he did he did that particular kind of Indiana Southern uh, draw voice. Um, uh, the guy who went, um, it was this big man. I'm not kidding. That was Steve Ritchie. Um, the uh, the the voice that goes, you would not believe it was this big. I am telling you, as you can might 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 detect, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, and there were uh, let's see, you know, then Mark was the was the guy who says, you know, gone fishing, leave a message. And then he was the guy who would say, you know, welcome to the fishing tournament. He was the main voice of that game. Um, huh. I would say uh, the other one that you didn't mention that that was a that you know that where 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 vocals played a very big part was uh, was Cyclone. Um, and uh, we really had a lot of fun with that. You know, we got into the whole, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of Carnival Barker thing. And again, that was Mark Ritchie who did that voice. Um, Mark was somebody that we really, really used a lot. Um, he had a, you know, he had a very clear, very strong voice. He had a, you know, again, he had a pretty good ear and, and, and was able to, uh, you know, to achieve that, 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 you know, really that, that, that very high energy, uh, up energy kind of, uh, kind of, you know, uh, just attitude that 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 just seemed to really work very well for 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 pinball, for you know for for having a voice that cheerled the player the player you know through the game and and uh, you know provide a little bit of instruction but mostly cheerleading that was the thing that 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 that, that voice did particularly well. Hmm. Um, so uh, I think those are the main um, you know non licensed titles that you 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 had mentioned. Now, when you went to licensed titles and you had to actually work with these people, you know you talked about uh, how you know. T on T two, how you guys didn't actually record Arnold that it was done on the set of T two by the the sound engineer there. Was that common, or did these people come into the studio often? Well, you know, whenever we could get a, an, an individual session with a you know with with talent from a you know from a licensed uh, you know that was always our preference. Obviously, um, you know, it just wasn't always possible. The uh, you know the Indiana Jones thing was uh, uh, you know was a particularly nice one. You know John Rhys Davies actually came to our factory and uh, and uh, gave us uh, the benefit of about an hour worth of work for um, you know the voices for um, uh, for Indiana Jones and so uh, all of those goofies uh, you know goofy awards and things like that. He was the he was the call for that for that game and and uh, of course he's just got you know he's a wonderful Shakespearean actor you know and uh, you know a fabulous project. And uh, just wonderfully coachable, and um, was just a great guy to work with. We 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 really really enjoyed working with him a great deal. Um, uh, with Adam's family, we got a chance, of course, to work with Raul Julia, and and that was another just you know it was a wonderful wonderful experience. Uh, um, it was 
um, you know, it was not long before he died that he, um, you know, that he that he produced that 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 shot, and 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 I don't really know, um, you know, I don't know too much much of the details about his his passing, so I don't really know what his state of mind was at the point where we, you know, where he did that movie or, uh, um, you know, how how things were going for him. But this was in, uh, I guess this was you know late 1991 or something like that that that, that we did that uh, did that project, and I uh, I did fly to New York and 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 had a had a recording session with him, um, and it was a very interesting session because, uh, um, you know, there's a there's a particular sort of an attitude that that that's kind of standard in all pinball games that that we need for vocal talent to to sort of uh, latch onto and 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 to project this attitude, and it's a, it's it's like I said, it's the attitude of a cheerleader and a and a and a very up energy kind of a uh, kind of a character, and uh, and certainly you know the 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 role of Gomez Adams was you know fit right in with that and, and it worked out as you know as you as you know it worked out fabulously well um but i i, I kind of had to give, give him fairly specific instruction with each line or i felt like i did anyway because his personal affect in the studio was so low and so kind of absent that i really didn't know whether he understood what it was that i wanted him to do because i would explain how a line was 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 to be said or i would do it for him i would i would Perform it kind of roughly the way that I would have done it, or the way that I did it on on, on a number of occasions. You know, when when I would say "get the extra ball" or "jackpot" or any of those kind of goofy things that that you know that we would do. Um, and I, you know, so I would I would I would model the behavior, or I would describe the the gesture, I would describe something about it to kind of coach him. And then he would sit in the studio in front of the microphone with this blank look on his face, huh? For about three seconds. And finally, he would do exactly what I wanted him to do, and absolutely nailed it. But without that coaching, he didn't seem to to uh, to be able to put himself in that place because he, you know, he he took no initiative in in ad libbing lines or or going any further than what I what I you know what I delivered. And I felt like he was just you know he was he was sort of performing like a like a circus bear or a circus you know or a, or a trained seal would would kind of perform so it was a little odd and 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 not altogether comfortable but you know obviously the result was just stunningly unbelievably awesome you know i mean it was a it was a great session and uh uh the you know this the, the custom speech for that game was 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 absolutely top notch i i should add that he um that i had a a, a girlfriend at that time who uh uh, who was from New York and knew uh, and 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 kind of idolized Raoul um, uh, from his Shakespeare in the Park days, and had asked me to get some kind of a an autograph for him or something like that. And actually, what I got him to do was to read a little thing for me that said, "Hello, this is Raoul. Jane can't take your call just now, but if you leave a message, she'll call you back." And it was a tremendous hit. <laughs> and uh, um, well, needless to say, I got a big hug and a kiss for that. One. Yeah, but, um, I would say. Anyway, anyway so that was a, a, a pretty memorable session. It was it was a little odd, but but you know, ultimately very successful. Um, you you had also asked about uh, uh, Sopranos. That was a wonderful um, that was a wonderful session. It yeah. Was, now, was now, that, who did you work on that with? That was a two day session. It was actually just one day um, in New York, and we got to work with four of the actors. We got to work with uh, Dominic Cianese, the guy who plays uh, Uncle Junior. Uh, we got to work with Edie Falco, who was just stunning. Uh, we got Lorraine Bracco, and then we got little Stevie Van Zandt, um, who plays Silvio. Um, and they were all in the studio that day and came in. You know, we spent about an hour and a half, or, or maybe a little more, with each of them. And 
you know, and, and, and all of them just, you know, they, they each kind of, you know, as, as, uh, as Lyman and, and Dwight and I had, had, um, kind of specked out, uh, uh, um, in, 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 you know, fairly lengthy and, and, uh, you know, extensive, uh, script preparation conversations for that game. They each kind of had a, a role to play and then we all had them kind of do the generic, um, you know, get the extra ball type, you know, the, the, the standard pinball stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, they all they all kind of kind of smiled and and were kind of kind of you know thinking, God, this is pretty silly, but all right, here we go. You know, um, uh, with with all of it, but they all you know, of course, they're all you know consummate professional actors, and 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 they just did fabulously well. And uh, so yeah, that was another very very uh, um, you know that was a pretty memorable session, I have to say. Then um, well, what do you do about the actors that you couldn't get? For the Sopranos, like you know, all of those, all of the other roles. Um, uh, the other guy that we got was Big Pussy, the guy who played Big Pussy. You know, he's been in a million things. Um, we got him uh, actually on a remote session. Uh, you know, that we he he was in New York, and we and we we, we recorded him from Chicago. Um, you know, we actually got him twice. Uh, we had to we had to do a makeup session with him. And, and, and wait, wait, wait. When you say remote, what do do you mean? You can do this over the telephone or something? Well, we, there's a there's technology that that you know that major commercial studios have that uh, that actually allow for uh, you know for for a an actor in one studio's audio to be transmitted through uh, the it's actually not the phone system itself it's but it's the ISDN system and uh, uh, those those lines um, uh, you know those are basically dedicated lines that you know that, that that operate out of the out of the old telephone system's trunk system it's it's a digital connection and it's a very high quality uh, dedicated you know connection and uh, uh, so you know a guy is is in a in a New York studio in front of a you know a five thousand dollar microphone in that New York studio playing through a, a Pro Tools rig that's wired into the ISDN system sending that audio to a studio in Chicago that's recording it also in Pro Tools. And we end up walking out of the studio in Chicago with the with a you know with a CD of the session, and then two days later we get overnighted or you know we get delivered to us the CD from the New York session as well. And frankly, unless you're you know unless you're in in a, a, a super high fidelity situation, you can't tell the difference between those two those those two pieces of audio. So huh. um, uh, you know we we've uh, we've we've been fortunate to to um, you know it's a, it's an expensive thing to do uh, obviously, but. Uh, uh, it's something we've we've done on a number of occasions, and it, you know, it, it, you know, when you when you don't have to spend the night in the hotel, and and when you've got uh, you know actors coming in that are that are you know costing you a lot of money, uh, it's a it's a it's a way to save some you know save some dough that way as well. So um, you know, we've taken advantage of that for for a couple of games. Now, who did Rod Sterling's voice? That actually is the name of a local Chicago actor. His name is Tim Kitzrow. Um, and uh, you, uh, if you know anything about Midway video games, he was also the uh, uh, he was the voice of a number of, of Midway sports titles. Um, so uh, he's 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 done a ton of work for us, uh, you know, over the over the years in various guises. He did some stuff for us over at uh, Incredible Technologies back in the day, and and uh, um, you know got to. Uh, I'm trying to remember, he did. It seems like he did something for us in. Uh, um, in a uh, in a in a stern pin. Uh, oh, he was the voice of NASCAR. So um, you know, he was he was one of the announcers. He, he was the uh, he he did a couple of, of different announcers for uh, for NASCAR. So um, you know, we were able to use him again. But that was Rod Serling uh, again. That was something that we had to work on quite a bit to to really kind of get the sound right. But uh, you know, feel like we we did a pretty good job. You know, I mean, of course, you know. In retrospect doesn't sound exactly like Rod, but uh, you know we got the we got the basic inflections and the attitude. I think we got pretty well right. 
Now, how often did you have to come up with custom sounds, you know, like the sounds of a motorboat or the sounds of a car or, or stuff like that, where you actually had to go outside the studio and hook a mic up to the tailpipe of a car? Did you ever have to do something um, like that? You know, I, I, I think we did, uh, um, you know, we did that whenever we could, really, because, you know, uh, live recorded sound, custom sound for any given situation, if you can... You know, if the situation is right and the recording environment is right, you know, you're always better off with a custom piece of sound than you are with with something canned off of a sound effects record. Um, you know, the the needs were were sufficiently, uh, you know, the list of sounds to make were sufficiently long that you know it wasn't really practical to do that with like with every sound with every digitized sound we'd need. But um, you know, whatever it was something that that you know where either people were going to like recognize the canned sound. You know, there's a couple of of bird calls that you know you still hear all over the you know all over television shows and stuff like that, and I know exactly what cut from what sound effects disc they come from, you know, because we've been through that stuff so often. But uh, you know, certain barn owl sounds, you know, it's just you know it's such a recognizable sound. Um, but uh, uh, you know, we uh, uh, we we would do that whenever we could, um, and like I say, whenever it was practical. So um, you know, the NASCAR stuff, we actually had some pretty good material from a couple of different. Um, NASCAR-related sources, so uh, most of our stuff there was, was uh, you know, I, I didn't need to record it myself, and it's a good thing, too, because I, I, I never did make it to a NASCAR track. Hmm. But, um, you know, like I say, any, you know, anytime we could, uh, um, you know, we could, we could, uh, could record something custom, we, we, we did a lot of that, and, and uh, you know, there were a number of, of recordings that we made over the years that, that yielded some very interesting results. I did a, uh, a session once that featured... Um, a flock of about 50 pigeons uh, that, that we knew hung out outside the recording studio of a fr- that was owned by a friend of mine. And uh, we went out with a couple of his microphones and, uh, and a bag of, of bird seed, and we basically got these, these incredibly, you know, I'm, I suppose they're as smart as they are, you know, but we got these birds to, to come down and sit on the sidewalk, you know, within a few feet of our microphone. And I was able to just make a single gesture that was, that was completely silent, just kind of wave my arms and raise my arms up and they would all fly away, you know, and it was just an incredible sound. And, um, and you know, I've used that sound in a number of, in a number of contexts. It's, it's a, huh. a real classic kind of a, uh, an iconic sound of, of, of a whole flock of birds flying away. And, uh, um, you know, it was a very effective session, and, and uh, uh, frankly, I haven't, uh, you know, I was never able to, to, to find that very sound anywhere on a disc, so I, I went out and made my own and, and got a really good one. So, um you know, there have been a number, you know, I've got a number of, of recordings of debris over the years. I've got a number of recordings of, of L-Track, uh, you know, uh, travel here in Chicago. we got the elevated trains and uh, um, got a couple of nice nice clips of that. And, um, you know, there are things that are, you know, like I say, that are iconic or that you, you know, that if you've got the time to do it, it's it's just nice to, to do a custom custom take. What about uh, World Poker Tour? Was there custom speech for that from the actors? There was uh, all of the characters on the uh, um, you know that make an appearance on the show uh, uh, spoke for us. Um, uh, the session was in Vegas. I went down. We did it all in one day. Um, you know, each of the three of them uh, you know came by the studio and, and, and did a set of set of set of lines. Um, uh, the uh, the main um, uh, play-by-play guy was the guy who did all of the uh, um, you know all of the suits and all of the. Uh, uh, you know the rankings of the cards and stuff like that, and uh, we had to have him do it in very specific ways in order for us to then have the game, um, you know, electro, uh, you know, electronically or, or, or you know, algorithmically combine those phrases together to call out hands. And uh, 
uh, that was a that was that was a fairly non-trivial script to write, and then it was pretty pretty tough session to actually deliver. But uh, but the guy did a really nice job, and uh, you know I, I think that speech came off pretty well. Um, Keith Johnson had to do quite a bit of massaging uh, to the to the to the playback program to get it to really come off in the game. But uh, you know we had good material to work with, and, and and I think it worked out pretty well. Now, what about the siren and fire? Uh, that was. Um, uh, that was not uh, that. That was synthesized. That was you know oh, that was okay. back in the Yamaha day, and 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 uh, that was one that we just uh, you know basically fired up the synthesizer and got something that sounded vaguely siren like, and uh, and that was just you know that was as good as it got basically. Hmm. I did want to want to say one other thing. I I we uh, we we started sort of started to get into this a little bit yesterday. I'd just like to add this one thing if it's a useful thing to you. And I just wanted to say that that the music experience. You know, we we talked about. You know, going from the Yamaha land of, of making you know synthesized noises and, and and you know writing music in assembly language to to writing music in our studios and working you know working with with uh, you know with with just any recording you know apparatus or, or or sound making devices that you could that you could find and 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 getting that stuff into the into the game. The first game, of course, that that, that we used actually used DCS four was was Indiana Jones, right. and of course we had. Um, you know, and, and this never happened again. This was the best treatment that I've ever had from a licensed uh, vendor. Although we've had very good treatment from from many, um, this was just an unbelievable thing, music-wise. I received a box, you know, a big giant banker's file box that was full with about a foot's worth of legal-sized, single-sided music score that was the original conductor's score from all three Indiana Jones movies. I mean. The score that the conductor used to conduct the orchestra for the movie that actually was, you know, that that actually was in that was was you know was released in the theaters and was on the videotapes that we have. Wasn't that and Williams? I, I can't even I can't even begin to to describe how unbelievably enlightening and educational that was as as an experience for me to sit there and watch the movie. And read the score as the movie was going by, and and just going, whoa, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta hear that again, and, and and rewinding the tape, and and watching these scenes over and over and over again to just understand how he would orchestrate these musical effects. And I mean, I I learned more about orchestration, you know, orchestral orchestration and and instrumentation, and how you got effects out of an orchestra and and out of those instruments. I learned more in that in that two month period of doing that game than I ever did in school, and that or that I have since. I, it, was, it was far and away the most. It was just this this giant giant leap forward for me, and it was such an incredible experience. Um, hmm. And I, you know, I, it would be you know my a, a, a recap of my career and the business would be incomplete without that story. It was it was just unbelievably cool thing to be able to do, and I, I'm so grateful for the people at LucasArts who sent us that music and. Uh, and then you know, for for everybody, just for the opportunity to be in that place and to be able to, you know, to go through there and 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 you know, take this snippet and that snippet from the movie score and and and, and turn it into, you know, pinball style loops and 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 get it all to to, to to you know, come out of a pinball speaker in an interactive way. That was a, it was a it was an honor and a privilege to work with that material, to work with John Williams's music and Herb Spencer's orchestration. It was just. It was an unbelievably enriching experience. So, you know, I just wanted to kind of get that in if you, if you very, don't mind. Very cool. Very cool. Did a lot of games get home ROM treatment from the sound perspective? Oh, well, you know, you know not really as much as you'd think. You know, there, you know, a couple of things like the fuck you asshole thing, that was kind of an obvious one, you know. But, um, 
you know, we really, we really got as much into those ROMs as we possibly could, and and you know, doing a home ROM was, uh, you know, was something where you just go, well, okay, I can put something different in, but what am I going to take out? You know, so um, so that was always a kind of, kind of an iffy thing. I said, so I suppose there was a, you know, there were a few, but um, you know, to be honest, I, I, um, uh, you know, the only one that I can really uh, reconstruct for sure was the, uh, you know, was was the, was the one from Terminator Two Pinball. Now, why did you end up leaving Stern? Well, I left. I, I ended up leaving the industries for you know for reasons that I think are are, are pretty complicated. And, you know, there certainly there was a uh, um, you know there was an economic reason involved. There was a uh, a kind of a personal um, you know I guess you could maybe call it a spiritual focus that was kind of coming around for me that had been something that had been developing for a long time. There was a uh, a kind of an artistic focus um, uh, issue as well. Um, but really, I think the biggest reason and the way that I can say this in the most clear clearly is that. I needed to make a big change in my life. I just needed to do something transformational, and um, uh, I had this opportunity to work for this particular firm uh, because of some family connections, and uh, because that opportunity was there for me, I just decided to take it. So now you're like a financial advisor or something? That, that's right, yeah. yeah. And how is that working out for you? And, and, and small business and family uh, you know, financial advice and uh, uh, you know, financial planning and, and uh, retirement planning, estate planning, things like that. Is that working out okay for you? Working out great. Yeah, I'm a very happy guy. Do Do you miss the sound thing? Excuse me. Do you miss you know the sound, the pinball sound, you know the the you know working for pinball sound? Sometimes I do. There are certain characters. I you know I I um you know uh, you know there are certain people. You know Lonnie Rop at pinball. He was a, he was a great guy to work with. Uh, Dwight Sullivan, another guy that I that I you know really enjoyed having you know very. Uh, detailed and, and, and elaborate conversations with uh, Keith Johnson, of course, just a tremendous uh, uh, talent. All the guys at Stern, really, you know, Steve Ritchie's been, a, you know, was a was a great designer, and um, you know, Dennis Nordman was just arriving there when I when I was leaving, and I was I was disappointed not to get a chance to really work very closely with Dennis. But uh, you know, those guys are are you know, um, I I certainly remember them very fondly, and uh, um, you know, and I certainly miss those guys. I I honestly don't don't miss doing it for for a living anymore. I I, I have a um, you know, I have a trio that I play with that, we, that I really do enjoy a lot, and I have a, uh, um, uh, you know, various opportunities to play music at church and things like that these days that I um, that I enjoy very much. And so I've got a couple of personal contexts where I do still, you know, I still have the musical opportunities, and uh, and that's more than enough for me. I, I'm much happier as a as a professional financial guy and an amateur musician than I was the other way around. So. Um, yeah, it's worked out really well. I hate to say this, but I've, I've, I've come to an event where I've, I've, I need to I, I, I need to tear myself away here. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, though. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry for holding you up, Chris. I really, really appreciate the call and the time. But you've got a, a great site there, and, uh, you know, good luck with it. Have, have a great day, Chris. All right, take care. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Chris Graner for joining us tonight on TopCast. Really do appreciate his time. It was great hearing from him and how Chris developed the sound for these these incredible pinball games on, on these different sound platforms. Really good hearing from them, and I hope you all come back and hear us again on TopCast. <laughs>